Howdy y'all, <laughs> McDaniel from San Luis Valley Great Outdoors. This is our first attempt at a little bit of a um, podcast that we're calling the GoCast, I think. <laughs> uh, first, first time at it, but uh, we have a guest here today and then the SLV Go team. Why don't we all just take a moment to introduce ourselves? We'll start with our guest, Brian, give us an introduction. <laughs> well, thank you, Mick. My name is Brian Putrella. And I am the assistant director for Adams State University in the core department manage Adams State Adventure Program, Adams State Adventure Sports, and the rec center as well. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to say when I was in that job, that's way more than I was doing. <laughs> Tierra. I'm Tierra Garania, and I'm the AmeriCorps VISTA slash development coordinator for SLV Go. Slash producer. Slash the producer. Uh, <laughs> slash the producer. <laughs> Patrick. Hi, I'm Patrick Ortiz. I'm the community engagement coordinator for Soundless Valley Great Outdoors, and I grew up in the Soundless Valley. He also managed our chainsaw drone program. <laughs> Which is being piloted today. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, we know you didn't grow up in the San Luis Valley, so tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah, Definitely. So I grew up just kind of in the suburbs of uh, kind of in between Fort Worth and Dallas, Texas. So that was up until about 2006. Um, And since then, I've lived in quite a few different places. So I went to college at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. After that, I lived on my bike for a while, spent some time down in South America. I lived in Alaska before finally landing in Alabama for grad school and then uh, eventually found my way to the San Luis Valley. I've been here for five years now, which uh, is definitely the longest I've been in one place. Wow. Seems like you have plans to hang around for a bit. Yeah, that's the goal. I certainly love it here. It's just an incredible spot. Super happy with it. My wife has a great job, so we're pretty content right now, that's for sure. That's awesome. You said uh, you had spent some time living on your bike. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so after college, I rode the Great Divide, which was actually my first introduction to the San Luis Valley coming through here. I did it over two months, made it through up into Wyoming, basically from Mexico. So we were going south to north. By the time we hit Wyoming, my riding partner had torn a tendon in his knee. So he did that in Salida. So I rode almost all of Colorado by myself, and he was like renting a car and hopping town to town. Like, like, okay, I'll meet you in Breckenridge. I'll be good to go by then. <laughs> and then you know, still hurting. And so by the time we hit Wyoming, we uh, just hit pause, and we still hope to get back out there and finish it. Yeah, what an incredible experience! The Great Divide Trail is pretty unbelievable. Um, yeah, the San Luis Valley coming through here for the first time. You know, you drop into Del Norte coming south to north. And 10 years ago, Del Norte was very different. <laughs> right. Remember, uh, I think the only place to eat was Boogie's Restaurant. And there was like this bar, Caddy Corner to Three Barrel, that we went to. And it was like a biker bar. 
we were there with like a gang of like bikers, motorcycles. <laughs> on their way to red river probably (laughs) totally (laughs) and then we camped in the park in del nort which was a cool spot at the time yeah it's amazing how much del nort has changed in 10 years i mean i think about that all the time i remember when i got here in 2003 i went to the town of del nort way back then people were like oh del nort's a pretty cool place to be and live big progress in del nort over the last 10 years, but even more since 2003, like 15 years or so. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's very exciting. I think it's reaching its potential of what it could be, which is just a really cool, small, affordable outdoor town. Yeah. So just for people who might not know, like the Great Divide, it's a bike tour, but it's also kind of a bike race. Yeah, the race goes north to south. So it's, uh, it's a route that the Adventure Cycling Association put together. Uh, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Um, so it was the first route they published, I think, and now they have hundreds. But they basically link together dirt roads that stays within, I believe, like 30 miles of the Continental Divide Trail. Wow. So you go Mexico to Canada or Canada to Mexico, right along the spine of the Rocky Mountains. And so the only flat spot is in Wyoming, and the rest you're either going uphill or downhill. Nice. <laughs> I had a good friend of a friend that uh, we shared some common stuff with that he raced that last year. And, you know, he was one of these guys, he's old, he's an older guy, but he was one of these guys that, you know, was like just over nine hours in Leadville, super fit cyclist. And uh, I went and bought him dinner in Del Norte when he came through and he was just hammered. Like, <laughs> he was like, he was like, this was way harder than I anticipated it being. He did finish and he did finish in the race. You know, you got to finish in so many days to, to remain in the race. He stayed on target for that. Yeah, but he was like, man, this is a really hard ride. <laughs> Brian, what was your favorite section? Um, for me, maybe one of the most meaningful sections was the Gila in southern New Mexico. Because for me, it was kind of at the start. You're still getting your legs underneath you. But the Great Divide, like one of the amazing things is no matter how hard the day is, typically the harder the day Uh, the more magical the camp spot is at the end of the day. And so there's this meadow somewhere in the Gila that's just maybe one of the most beautiful meadows I've ever seen. We camped right next to this creek, like desert mountains. Absolutely unbelievable. Awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. That sounds like that was probably a pretty significant part of your outdoor experience. What other highlights do you have that kind of shaped you, your interest for where you are now? I know for when you're in an outdoor career, I mean, I, I think your interest, your recreation, your passions kind of begin to run together with your work sometimes. Tell us a little bit about those highlights and like how that shaped you and who you are right now and your and where you're going with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head already. It's hard to like pinpoint pivotive moments. It's kind of like one long continuum. You know, when I was growing up, my dad worked for an airlines company, Delta Airlines. And we have family all over the country. So we flew for free and we just went to visit family a lot. We had family in really cool places. So California, for example, and go visit my uncle. We'd go surfing in Malibu and then we'd rock climbing in Joshua Tree National Park. The next season we'd go like to Florida and we'd go to like Cocoa Beach and go surfing. So a lot of traveling in my youth and with all of that uh, outdoor experiences and 
I think when I was really younger, like I mentioned, like surfing was really my first connection, like true connection to nature. And I really feel like people who live near the ocean, especially surfers, probably have the strongest connection to nature. You know, just the sport alone is so reliant on nature and, you know, storms. It's, it's a sport of scarcity, a lot like skiing is here. Yeah, that was probably one of my first true connections. And then growing up in Texas, I raced BMX bikes through elementary school. And I got into dirt bikes in kind of middle school, college. Motorized. Motorized, yeah. Yeah, Which I loved. And then uh, I think it was my sophomore year in college. um, I was living in an apartment and I had a dirt bike in my room in the apartment. (laughs) It was just like, this isn't really working anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Me and my buddy I was living with, we sold the dirt bikes and bought mountain bikes, which was a little more affordable as a college student and accessible. And so, yeah, that was when I really transitioned to mountain biking. And then when I was a junior in college, I went on my first outdoor trip with the Texas Tech Outdoor Program. It was just interested in learning how to whitewater kayak. I had been seeing a lot of like videos and pictures of people like running waterfalls. And I was just like, man, I, I could do that. That looks cool. <laughs> so <laughs> went on a, an intro to whitewater trip and then later the advanced whitewater trip. And I think uh, the day after the advanced whitewater trip, they hired me on as the staff. And then I started working for the outdoor program, which was probably one of the biggest pivotal moments for me. That summer, I went on the leadership training course, LTC, which is something all the staff go through. It's an 11-day backpacking course, which was really my first experience backpacking. It's really where I learned the skills to do cool stuff like the Great Divide. (laughs) Just really had no idea how cool that program was and didn't know it at the time but that I could have a career doing something that awesome. So post-college bike tour over the summer and then that September me and two other friends just flew to Peru with no plans (laughs) and ended up staying in South America for six months. We started out in a small town called Pisco and we were working for this nonprofit called Pisco Sin Fronteras, which kind of weirdly is a spinoff of Burning Man. (laughs) (laughs) All the people who run Burning Man are like down in Peru in the summer times apparently. So we spent a couple months there rebuilding houses, schools, things like that. They had been hit by a really bad earthquake. It was a pretty poor town to begin with. That was kind of our base camp and we do little adventures on the weekends from there. And then we went up into Cusco, Peru. We did an 11-day, I think, hike up to Machu Picchu with 10 of our friends that we had met down at that nonprofit. Which if anyone ever gets the chance, man, that's such an incredible trip. Salkantai? Did you do the Salkantai? Yeah. Sock and tie. Yeah, exactly. Have you done that, Patrick? That's what I did. Yep, same one. So cool. Yeah. (laughs) So we uh, explored that area for a while. And then we kind of made our way south from there. We went through the Atacama Desert in Chile. We were riding buses, right? But then we'd hop off into town and we would just like hang out in the town and then like sleep in the trees outside of the town. (laughs) Gypsy life. (laughs) This organic farm in the mountains where he basically grew a lot of his own food for the pizzeria he had in town. We stayed there for two months, just like working on this incredible farm in the mountains. And then we'd work at the pizzeria every now and then. But he had like horses. We ended up on like the local soccer team for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of really great experiences there. 
before we started going south, we rode in the back of a pickup truck like a thousand miles down into Patagonia. And we ended up in this town called Pucon. And ahead of time, people were like, oh yeah, a lot of kayaking down there. I was like, okay, yeah, it's probably not, you know, what we think of as kayaking. And we get there and on the bus, we are just like driving down the street. We see like a group of pro kayakers, like whitewater kayakers. Like, okay, maybe this is a whitewater spot. And so we start looking it up and like, holy cow, is that a whitewater kayaking destination? It's the only place I know if we can actually rent boats. So we got lucky and we spent a few days running these like class four, class five rivers down in Patagonia. Just like waterfall drop runs absolutely incredible and then we made our way into patagonia from there we had a we had a failed woofing experience down there where we showed up we worked on this organic farm and they basically just like made a shovel poop for like six days straight <laughs> so, oh, <God. laughs> like, okay yeah this this one isn't as good as the last job so uh, <laughs> we kept going we did the the blue towers uh one of the national parks down at Torres del Pine. We did a 10-day backpacking circuit there. And yeah, to wrap it up, you know, six months later, we were out of money. I had sold my truck to pay for the trip. So I only had $2,500 for like the whole trip. <laughs> and oh, made it six months before coming back. And then, uh, yeah, I had to dig myself out of having no money and no car when I got back to the States. So. Yeah, I, I did a similar trip, Brian, for just six weeks. And it's amazing how, you know, self-reliant you realize you are when you like don't know the language that well. I had lost my cell phone the first day. It got <laughs> stolen in the Lima, Peru airport. So oh, I didn't have geez. a phone for six weeks. But it was great. You know, I knew I had a plane ticket home. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, anybody who has the chance to go to South America, I definitely recommend it. Peru is a very different place. It's absolutely unbelievable. Chile, it's a little bit more modern, but you can definitely get lost. You know, Patagonia is like a third of the whole country. It's it's not like a small part. And the upper portions of it, I think, are really unbelievable. Gosh, that's, Brian, that's incredible. We got so much in common from dirt bikes to like South American travel, travel, et cetera. And I feel like we've got a pretty good take on kind of who you are and your background. So kind of moving to our present day, San Luis Valley and, and you running the Adam State Adventure Program. You got a story you can tell us about the valley that maybe you would tell someone who's never been here before? You know, if I was trying to sell someone on the valley, which, you know, I don't think is a hard sell. You know, one thing I always talk about is just like, if you like the outdoors, like what an incredible place this is, because, you know, there's a lot of obvious hot spots in Colorado for spending time outside, you know, Aspen, Boulder, Crested Butte, Grand Junction, all those places, right? But if you go mountain biking in any of those areas, man, you're mountain biking with like a thousand of your closest neighbors, right? But out here, man, you can get lost and not see a single person on your ride. It's, it's unbelievable. And so the wealth of outdoor access compared to the number of people who use it here is incredible. It's, it's not like anywhere else that I've been. And that it's changing a little bit. I'm starting to see more people on some of the more remote trails a little bit. I mean, we're still talking like, I'll see two people on a ride, on a three-hour ride. Like, that's unheard of, which is crazy that that's more than it was a few years ago. But yeah, and, and it's any sport, right? Like kayaking, canoeing, any of the water sports, mountaineering up in the Sangre de Cristos. 
backpacking in the San Juans, even the sand dunes, which are pretty crowded, you can pretty easily get away from the crowds. And so I think that's maybe my favorite part of living in the valley is just uh, being able to get out there and find space to yourself, which is super important to me. <laughs> then if I, if I wasn't trying to sell the valley, <laughs> one of my favorite stories was on the Great Divide when I was coming through here. So I told you all about Donort already. And then if you keep going north, you know, you kind of traverse. Uh, you don't really enter the valley. You stay kind of in the foothills just north of Donort. But you'll start catching glimpses of like the sand dunes. And I remember one day we were meeting friends in Salida for Fibarc. And so we were like three days ahead of schedule. And so we were like, well, let's just go check out the sand dunes. <laughs> like okay and so we like <laughs> camped what i now know is like just outside penitente canyon and just like ripping winds right it was like sandy out we couldn't get our tent sticks in the ground so we just like slept outside and just like ate dust all night <laughs> and then the next day we were like all right, let's go to the sand dunes. And so I don't know if anyone's tried to like ride their bike all the way across the valley, but it is quite far. <laughs> so, on a loaded bike, it was like 70 miles and, you know, you're traversing the valley and the sand dunes just don't get closer. We like, <laughs> remember we rode into, into center and I think the only grocery store they had was like a Dollar General or something. So it was like, Oh, brutal. And it was only like halfway. So we kept going and then we finally made it to, uh, what is that, Highway 17 or 17? Yeah. We're like, all right, we're close. And we look at the map and we're still like 30 miles away at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, we made it to the Great Sand Dunes State Park, which is another cool spot in the valley a lot of people don't know about. Or um, San Luis Lake State Park. Yeah, yeah San Luis yeah. Lake State so that was as far as we made it after like a, a totally grueling day, like traversing just super flat roads with like semi trucks. Uh, we never actually made it to the sand dunes, but we just got like hammered by wind the whole time. It's like a, a pretty miserable day traversing the valley. Like, never ending mirage. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> And then to get out of the valley, we rode just straight north up that highway, which is probably the worst road I've ever ridden my bike on. Yeah, man. Just... 17 has no shoulder. That's a scary road to ride a bike on. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, I, I do not recommend that. It's yeah. completely terrible. Man, that's awesome. I've often thought that like our one of our best assets in the valley was the wind, you know? And we could... <laughs> potentially just have like a grueling race, like a gravel race that crossed the valley and do it in like May. <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. Started at like two in the afternoon. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, if it's 60, 70 miles across, like we could probably do cross one way and back and have pretty close to a 200 mile route. And then people would have to like fight the wind, at least in one direction. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you could follow that vortex that happens. Like if you leave Alamosa and go south, you hit the wind. Then if you go west, you hit the wind. Then as you get near the mountains, if you start going north, you'll hit a headwind again. <laughs> then if you go far enough north, you'll hit the headwind where it's blowing from the east. So <laughs> you can do a full 360 degree wind and just follow like that 
vortex that happens in the valley. It's a road cyclist nightmare, but you might be on to something. Brian, I like how you're thinking. We should talk more about this. <laughs> <laughs> I already have a name for it. El Viento del Norte. <laughs> yeah. The wind of the north. <laughs> so, hey, without giving us any, like, I mean, if you want to give us a specific location, you can, but you can also just describe this. What's your favorite place in the SLV? It's a tough question. It's a, it's a large valley. <laughs> when I think about this, I don't know if there's any one spot. Anytime I go to the sand dunes, like it absolutely blows my mind. If you hike up into the dunes, kind of past the herd of people, man, that, it blows my mind every time. But I, I think one of my true favorite places in the valley is just like the foothills in the West Valley, like near Del Norte, where a lot of our trails are up towards Penitente. Anytime I try doing rides, I just want to go do like a long ride and just kind of connect gravel roads or like I want to go work on map skills or GPS work. I'll just plug in some like dirt roads down there. And every time it's just unbelievable to me, like every single like double track dirt road out there is unbelievably gorgeous. It's like rolling foothills. You know, I always feel like I'm going to get like attacked by a mountain lion or something. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, you're in the right foothills if you, if you feel that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yesterday I parked at the Spanish trails at that wagon wheel uh, monument thing. And I rode 15 miles basically straight uphill. It's just like an incredible ride. Some of the most beautiful canyons up in that area back in there. Yeah, you just don't see a single person out there. It's incredible. Yeah, man, that's, I mean, you know, that's right across from where I live. Even when I lived in Alamosa, that was always one of my favorite areas. And still, now I'm, I I saw you on, what was it, Sunday, I guess, you were on Moden. And we were, we were just went in and like, you know, off trail hiking. And every time I'm just like, there's just so much back here. I haven't ever seen. Yeah, definitely. I was writing Dead Man's a couple days ago and I found like what looks like a very old hunting blind. (laughs) You know, there's just all sorts of cool like archaeological sites back in there. If you get off the bike and explore a little bit, you can find even more incredible stuff like that. It's an incredible place. Yeah, Sunday when I saw you make it, I think we were the only people out there. It was like 35 degrees or something. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And that's kind of why I saw you riding and I was like, I had thought about riding, but in the end, kind of decided it'd be a better day for hiking. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I was just itching for it too bad. I pulled out all the, the winter cycling gear. It's like, all right, I'm going for it. Nice. You know, I think we know that you're planning on being here in the Valley for a bit. So what do you see as like the next important asset for the Valley? Or what do you foresee being the next thing you want to do here? Feel free to kind of open that question up for yourself. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, kind of my two favorite aspects of the Valley is you know, the outdoor culture and the local food culture. And so I I would hope to see both of those progress in the future. And yeah, for the outdoors, like I think we have incredible opportunity to just keep growing that. And for me, I think a priority with like maybe trail development would be to start connecting some of the trail networks we have with single track, not just double track. I think we have an opportunity to work with landowners to make the rivers navigable again and just increase 
increase the access to all these incredible resources. Um, we're working on getting boat ramps in the town of Alamosa, for example, so we can increase access there, concentrate usage. So just keep going down the road we're going on and yeah, work on access, work on the infrastructure for it. We've already seen really a large culture shift in the last five years of people using the outdoors here. And I think we've just scratched the surface. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that to come. And then, you know, the local food culture, like I think that's one of my favorite parts of this area is the food scene. And I did a lot of work with the Rio Grande Farm Park. I was on the board the last four or five years. Um, I just came off it a couple months ago. But I think the work they're doing, the work the local food coalition is doing is really incredible. We do grow a lot of food here. And that's awesome. Just would love to see that increase more, see a lot more like regenerative agriculture, a lot more smaller farms, a lot of what like Soil Mountain Farms is doing, for example, CSAs, all that awesome stuff. And so, you know, when I see my future, I think it's definitely always going to revolve around the outdoors. I think for me to progress my skills from where they're at, I might be looking at working like ski patrol, for example, to increase my like avalanche forecasting, avalanche awareness to get better at like that skill set or the skiing skill set or get back into guiding one day um, if I want to increase the skill set in other areas. And so, you know, I, I think there's potential for all of that within the San Luis Valley. But the other kind of dream job that I just know nothing about is growing food. <laughs> I don't think I could grow a zucchini to save my life right now. <laughs> so not in the near term by any means, but I could see like my next incarnation being like a farmer in the summertime and like ski patrol in the wintertime or something like that and starting to blend these two things that I'm passionate about. Start with growing some herbs, you know, like cilantro, <laughs> basil. That's how we started. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, we're working on that this week. We uh, just built a cold frame box for our herb garden last weekend, and uh, we're just starting to plant our herbs. Nice. Yeah, that's where we're starting too, Patrick. Hopefully I can grow some basil without killing it. Pretty big part of your life, I think, is that you're a vegetarian, right? I am, yeah. I I hover that line between vegan and vegetarian. I'd say I'm like 99% vegan, but a true passion of mine is just pizza. And so that's where (laughs) it blurs the line a little bit. (laughs) So I eat a fair amount of pizza. And a lot of the pizza I eat is vegan. But, you know, Parmigiano-Reggiano is a wonder of the world I'm not quite ready to give up yet. Tell us about what that is. <laughs> it's it's just Parmesan cheese. Um, okay. All it is. But it's like the real Parmesan cheese from Italy, like in the, I don't know how you pronounce it, but Medina, Madonna region. Uh, High moisture, right? Uh, low moisture. Oh, right. Parmesan. Sorry, I was thinking mozzarella. <laughs> yeah. Very hard cheese. And it actually, through the aging process, it loses its, uh, uh, what's that thing in dairy that everyone's allergic to? Blanket Lactose. Yeah, it loses its lactose. And so it's healthier than a lot of other cheeses. People can digest it easier. Man, that's awesome. I forgot how we got on that tangent there, but... (laughs) Oh, yeah. So vegetarian food. Um, Yeah, I... Let me just explain how I got there, I guess. I've been doing February as like a vegetarian month for many years before I went vegetarian. And I always picked February because that's just typically when we run the least amount of outdoor trips. And so it's like, uh, 
I don't want to run a trip and like have to completely change the menu for like just this fun thing I'm doing. But eventually, you know, how I explain it is I, I just ran out of excuses to like eat meat and meat products until like, you know, the last excuse I had was just like, oh, but it tastes good. <laughs> so, but it's like the environmental impact of eating meat and meat products is uh, pretty extreme at this point. What's, yeah, I don't know if we need to get into that. You know, the animal cruelty side of it, like animal agriculture, especially in the United States, is uh, pretty despicable and hard to take part of. So I was like conscious of all those reasons for a long time and, you know, worked to reduce the amount of meat that I ate. But then uh, I remember, I think it was my first year here. I was like, I think the next thing I want to learn about is nutrition. Like, what is it? even mean to eat healthy and as soon as you go down that road the overwhelming evidence points towards vegetarian food and you can look at that just through so many different venues of health um yeah i eventually just kind of ran out of reasons to eat meat and meat products and uh went vegan and was probably true vegan for probably three years before i started bringing back some pizza into my life <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely like a, a bit of a journey for people huh getting to that place yeah, definitely. And I think you, you need to find a way that makes it sustainable for you. And, you know, there's no, there doesn't have to be rules around it, I don't think. If you want to be vegan and eat pizza, great. If you want to be vegan and eat chicken and waffles once a month, <laughs> go for it. Like, it's not all or nothing. It's just finding a, a sustainable path forward for you and, you know, whatever helps you stick to it. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I think you're right. Like, you know, I struggle with some of the same things, you know, in different avenues. Eating good for you doesn't mean that it's like that you can't occasionally have that bowl of ice cream or a, uh, you know, chicken and waffles if you want it. <laughs> yeah, Everything in moderation, right? That's really the thing <laughs> for anything that we intake into our bodies. <laughs> Yeah, everything in moderation except for fast food, which yeah. <laughs> definitely is cut out of your life. Yeah, and I think, you know, Brian, you're talking about a bigger thing of people just need to become more aware of where their food comes from and how it was raised. I think supermarkets, <laughs> such a big part of urban areas, people just get disconnected from, you know, oh, where does your meat come from? Oh, King Supers. No, like you need to find that root of where it's sourced from. And, and I wish that was more of at the forefront of our culture to kind of begin having that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you look at like uh, the centurion cultures, Dan Buhner's work with the Blue Zones is really incredible. The cultures that live the longest in the world, you know, I think there's only one in the U.S., seven-day Adventists in California who don't eat meat. Greece, there's some places in like Costa Rica, Italy, right. um, they all eat primarily a plant-based diet, you know, up to like 10% of their calories come from animal products. And so it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like you said, it's usually just moderation and knowing where your food comes from. And so much of the problem nowadays is just uh, the agriculture industry and mass production made our food less healthy and it's raised in really terrible conditions and so you know if you can get back to like i don't know if you've seen the documentary uh the biggest little farm <laughs> but like yeah that is that is a yeah. great documentary yeah. yeah yeah right like if you're eating vegetables like that and even the animal products like that you've removed both the ecological impact of animal agriculture and you've removed a lot of other issues that go along with meat products and then 
if you're only eating a small amount of it, say like the one goat you slaughter every year or something, then you remove the health issues with it alongside that. And it's both more nutritious meat, more nutritious vegetables, and you have to have animals to regenerate the soil. So it's just a life cycle that we've really lost over the last couple of generations. Yep, exactly. Well, Brian, I feel like we could do a whole separate podcast just talking about this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Good deal. Well, um, super interested in that. I've got two more fun questions. These are, these are, you know, just digging a little bit more into Brian, but, uh, what's your favorite non outdoor pastime? It's a good question. Um, well, it kind of blends in what I was just talking about, definitely, which would probably be cooking, which, which blends in the outdoor topics a little bit because, you know, to be a better athlete, you need to eat well, which sure. is kind of how it started for me. But I really love cooking. And I have uh, an Italian grandmother who's no longer with us, but a lot of great childhood memories of like going to Florida, drinking fresh squeezed orange juice and grapefruit juice. And, you know, at 9 a.m., we'd start cooking our pasta dinner for the day. And so my parents cooked a lot and definitely passed on those genes, those values of cooking. And so I definitely spent a lot of time cooking. I particularly love cooking Italian food, especially pizza. And ramen is something I'm currently working on perfecting right now. Nice. Uh, been homebrewing for probably 10 years now and can pretty consistently brew some decent beer. And so that's kind of the other hobby that I've spent any amount of money on uh, would be homebrewing. That's awesome. Okay. And this is our last and final question. It's a doozy. You ready? Yeah. So what people don't know about San Luis Valley Great Outdoors is that we're like really big fans of this podcast called Mysterious Universe. And so (laughs) kind of a nod to that podcast. Have you had any supernatural experiences in the SLV? Oh, man, I wish I had a better answer to this, but I have not. I've spent many nights in the valley sleeping outside, looking at the stars, waiting to see a UFO. And <laughs> it just hasn't happened yet. And so, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things, like the more you want to see it, the less likely you are to actually make it happen. And so I think that's what's happening is I want to see the aliens so bad. Stop looking for Sasquatch <laughs> when you're out and about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Have y'all had any experiences? Well, I haven't had any supernatural. Well, I had a, uh, I've had some weird stuff happen in the Valley for sure. One was, I was actually on my way early one morning to a wilderness uh, education conference. At the time they were being held up in um, Estes Park. You know how it is. Like I got tied up at Adams and I couldn't get out. And so I left that morning for like a 10 a.m. conference start in Estes Park. And so I left like super early. It was like, I don't know, 5.36 in the morning. And I it was right before the time change too. So like the sun was up at 6 a.m., you know, into February, 1st of March, right in there. And uh, I just got to outside of Fort Garland and I look over and there's like a Black Hawk helicopter, like in black, like flying <laughs> along the valley. And I totally like pulled over to like to look at it. And when I did, it kind of like turned toward me and started flying toward me. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go. <laughs> <laughs> 
The only yeah. other weird thing I really ever had happen was, and it wasn't supernatural, but Morgan and I were coming back from like a Christmas holiday and we're crossing La Vida Pass kind of late. You know, we'd pushed later than we'd wanted to, but I think it was like midnight. We we're coming in to the valley and, and there was a semi truck that had like basically unloaded a bunch of people, you know, in the middle of the winter walking down La Vida Pass. And I, to this day, I don't really know what was up. And yeah, we were both concerned, you know, but we were like, well, if they're like illegal immigrants and we call the cops, well, then what's that going to do? I mean, it was just one of these conundrums, you know, so it didn't look like they weren't unprepared for it, you know, like people had coats on, but it was seriously concerning and really weird. (laughs) My only uh, kind of paranormal experience was fly fishing at Pogue Lake above Beaver Reservoir. Um, outside of South Fork and some fishing and then consistently start hearing this wood knocking. Like it wasn't just like a woodpecker. It was like a hard hit on a tree echoing in that cirque there. So that was kind of the only time where I'm like, hmm, all right, what could that be? That's Bigfoot. Right. <laughs> so Pogue Lake. <laughs> Well, Brian, man, thank you so much for taking an hour plus of your time today to like hang out with us and talk through this. It's been great getting to know a little bit more about you. Anything else you'd like to say? No, thank you guys for putting this together. It was my pleasure. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing some more of these from some of our partners in the Valley. And I hope you do an episode where y'all just interview each other. I think that'd be <laughs> We have that wasn't on our list, so we'll add it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. We'll take care of Brian and Patrick and Tierra. Talk to you all later. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Have a good one.